Hello, Living Guide listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another special episode for you. Uh, but first, I'd like to clear the air about some of our podcasting scheduling as of late. I know that we've been very sporadic. Truth be told, we're technically on hiatus, and we will be until September. So regular episodes with Dennis and Chris and I will resume in September. I'll let you know later at, uh, at what date that actually will be, be launched. But at the end of our season, traditionally, and, and we're still figuring this out, we don't, <laughs> we don't have a, a traditional rubric that we have for, for our podcast, but at the end of each season, we tend to like to sit down with friends of the Institute, friends of ours, and uh, sit down, have conversations. So last couple weeks ago, we, we had an episode with Father Andrew Menke, who works for the USCCB. Today's episode was, is with Father Dan Steele, who helped launch the podcast, unbeknownst to him. And uh, we're hoping to sit down with Monsignor Robert Dempsey next week and Dr. James Pauley of Steubenville. So those are things that Dennis and I can do uh, in-house, but because Chris lives in Wisconsin, it's hard to, to schedule things. So regular episodes are going to re- resume in September. And secondly, I want to give a shout out to our new Patreon supporters. So shout out to Melissa Montenegro, Christopher Meehan, Joyce Donahue, Benjamin Koch, AG, Father Jacob Maurer, and a very special shout out to Adam Minahan. Adam Minahan and David Niles, who both support us on Patreon, have their own podcast called The Catholic Man Show. So you should definitely check that out. It's really amazing. And if you want to support us on Patreon and you want to get some sweet, sweet swag, uh, some of you have already... Uh, sent us messages that you got your t-shirts already so if you want to support us go to patreon.com slash liturgy and lastly i want to let you know about a new conference that we have coming up in september it's called treasures of the liturgy we're bringing in dr james Pauley to talk about reimagining sacramental preparation and how catechists pastors and parents can turn the tide of sacramental indifference so if you are a dre or in charge of rcia or adult faith formation for a parish or you're a parent and you want to teach your kids more about the sacraments, or you just love our podcast, you should come to this this conference. It's on September 14th here on our campus in Mundelein, Illinois. And if you want to register, you can go to liturgicalinstitute.org slash conferences. And finally, episode 44 of season two of The Liturgy Guys with Father Dan Steele. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. Jesse. Dennis. Guess what? What? Do you remember the moment that the light bulb burst over your head in the hall of dining at the Mundelein Seminary at University of St. Mary of the Lake slash Liturgical Institute? That, ha- that happens a lot, but um, I think I know what you're talking about. We were, Chris was there, and I was mm-hmm. there, and you were there, and there was mm-hmm. yet no such thing as liturgy guys. There was no such thing. It didn't exist yet. And Correct. there was this punk kid seminarian mm-hmm. who was sitting with us. And he asked a question. He made the mistake of asking a simple question. Yep. And then he got pounced on by Chris and me. And what happened in your brain at that moment? Well, the light bulb. And well, that was over my brain. And then it burst. And I was like, this needs to be a podcast. And you guys and Chris was like, what's a podcast? Mm -hmm. And I had never listened to a podcast (laughs) at that point. And that was with a seminarian by the name of Dan Dan Steele. Dan Steele. Yeah. 
Now, yeah. <laughs> now Father Dan Steele, we've now mentioned Dan's, him yeah. a few times over the season. You have some fans because we've gotten some tweets about people like, "Oh yeah, make sure he follows through and he does it and goes really? on the podcast and don't <laughs> don't let him uh, opt out." Better oh, it's back. Air thing. All right. Okay. We'll edit out that. Don't worry. <clears throat> Father Dan Steele, say hi to your admiring admirers. Hello, you've made me very nervous now. But <laughs> <so>. <laughs> well, remember how well it went when you didn't know what you were doing at the lunch table that day? And now here we are, 200,000 downloads and three Patreon donors later. Three mm-hmm. Patreon donors. As of right now, yeah. As of right now. So uh, here you are. This is an exciting day. We've mentioned your name a few times, and you, I think you told me that you got some comments about it in your home. Yeah, it took a while yeah. for you to actually listen to the podcast, right? Of Yakima, Washington. Yeah. We sent our, our army of liturgists after you. <laughs> <laughs> you're welcome for my dubiosity. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Excellent. So you're here this summer studying, right? For you're your studying. SDL? Yep. Yeah, how's that going? It's going good. You read all day. And then you wake up and you read. Oh, man, that sounds horrible. <laughs> but then I like it. When you're done, you'll have a license. Like, we, like a license to drive, except it's a license in sacred theology. It's like a card you show at every seminary, and you're like, boom, I'm here, and you can teach theology. Yeah. Every Catholic seminary in the world. That's a scary thought. <laughs> should not be that easy. Yeah. Did you do any coursework this summer, or are you done with your coursework? Yeah, two classes this summer. Oh, wow. Uh, finishing up the coursework. And... Um, then moving into the writing phase for the thesis mm-hmm. and uh, trying to keep that going while I'm in the parish. Wow. That's got to be really difficult. It's a good thing that you're not like a pastor now. You are only like an associate pastor, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. But you're studying a whole bunch of Thomas Aquinas, Summa Contra Gentiles. You know, Thomas actually is what made me start asking all these questions. Mm. It made me a dubious man. Just like you and Bishop Barron. Thomas turned him into the man he is today. Well, what happened was, before I ran into you and Chris in the dining hall, there were these debates going on about what is the essence of God? Is it his mercy? You know, Walter Casper's writing about these things and first things. It was around the time of the synod and the family. Mm -hmm. And I remember seeing Father Barron before he was bishop. And I thought, I don't know. Father Barron does the father have mercy on the son and the son have mercy on the father? Is that the essence of God? It can't be the essence of God because then there's an imperfection in God. Father Baron, maybe it has to do with the simplicity of God, but I took your class, but I don't understand. I'm not ready. I can't be a priest. <laughs> and then I ran into Dennis and Chris that's, in, the, that's in the room and I thought, what's going on with these liturgy questions? Mother Angelica just built this church. I thought, why is she doing all these things? I can't be a priest. I don't know these things. That so is El Diablo. El Diablo getting in your head. And Chris looked at me when I asked him this question like, I just asked him, what is the Eucharist? <laughs> <laughs> what is Jesus? <laughs> what did you actually ask him? I can't remember what I asked him. Oh. It was something about the way they were doing it. It might have had to do with Latin or ad orientum. Or... But then we started talking about architecture and you said, but what about noble simplicity? And I, then I was like... You know, like the gates of hell open, sort of like, how dare you ask that question? <laughs> How's that for my demon voice? Well, I don't know that that would be the best okay. metaphor for Actually, you. no, it was more like the angelic singing of heaven came down. <laughs> or White Castle. Or White Castle. <laughs> but you know, one of the names for the Blessed Virgin Mary is the Tourist Ebornia, which means the Tower of Ivory, which is basically a synonym for White Castle, so... Oh my goodness. Uh, that is terrific. I thought it was a synonym for Arby's. Well, that too. <laughs> 
But uh, so then we started meets. talking about noble simplicity and the difference between noble beauty and noble simplicity. It was console. like a tennis match. It was like said. it was like Chris talks, then Dennis, and then Chris, and then I was just like. You know, like a tennis match, your eyes go to the right, to the left, to the right, and then the whole time I was just like, I love all of this. Because you probably were a little overwhelmed by Well, I got ordained, and I still don't know the (laughs) essence of God or what noble simplicity is. Well, you know, you're not alone in either of those things, I think. People are still trying to figure out what noble simplicity is. But, but, you actually have ideas of your own, as I've hung out with you this summer, I realized you are a smart dude. Even in, if that was three years ago and you thought you were asking simple questions. Hang out with this guy and he's like, oh, what about the postmodern blah, 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 and Nietzsche and Sartre and uh, Schillebex and blah, 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 all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, and, yeah, we ask the same questions. We're yeah, like well, the same true. person. It's like I hear him talking, but it's just <laughs> wah, 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 because over my head. But you have some particular theological thing you want to talk about today. Well, Dan. yeah. To redeem when, yourself from not knowing the answers all those years ago. Well, it even happened today in class. Boy, I was ready to die because we started talking about Thomas again and Doctrine of God, and I went out of there thinking, we're almost, this is like doctorate-level studies, and I'm still very, very confused on this. So it's good to talk about something you know because then you remind yourself that you're not a complete idiot. But something to ground you, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, the things that's always on my mind, and when I was thinking about liturgy, is the nuptial images. Nuptial? Mm-hmm. N-U-P-T-I-A-L? N-U-P-T-I-A-L. N-U-P-T-I-A-L. Or nuptial. Anyway, what about nuptial images? Nuptial means like, nuptial means marriage stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what does that have to do with the liturgy? Well, basically, they manifest themselves exteriorly, kind of like a sacrament in the liturgy. It's kind of like the, where the play happens from theology and spirituality when we live it out. So you can see all these elements in the liturgy of... Well, who's getting married? Well, do you want me to explain that? I yeah. want you to answer that I, question. I actually I don't want to get question. too detailed before we get to the big... Dennis might know the answer to that question, but I do not. Well, I mean, I think I have a guess, but... The people getting married are Joe and Jill down the road. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, in a wedding, right, we know two people are separated to some degree. Wait, are we talking about the marriage rite or just like the mass? Nuptiality. We're talking about the big picture of all of creation. Oh, we're going pretty big with it. Big, big picture is basically God wants to marry us and be one with us. Mm -hmm. We have the the bridegroom imagery that we see a lot, right? Yeah, Mm -hmm. the wedding feast of the Lamb has begun. I don't think people think of marrying God as all that interesting. Where does it, what's that line well, that says you We need to bring sexy back. Your builder. <laughs> <laughs> True sexy. Justin Timberlake did that, I thought. Your builder, there's something that your builder will marry you, your right, builder Jerusalem? builder will marry you. Isn't that weird? I'm going to build a city and then the guy who builds it's going to marry the city. Well, what's even weirder is that for the spiritual writers, the soul is feminine. So if you're a guy that likes moves concrete and like builds things and breaks things and then he hears that the soul is feminine... It's really weird. Mm-hmm. Then you look at the monks in the monasteries. These are all men, and they're out working and clearing like large parts of an entire country. And then they'd come in and they'd write these beautiful love poems to God. You know, and, um, I don't know why I brought that up, but well, that's what we're talking about: God <laughs> marrying us, right? Well, yeah. it's it's, this, it's another level to then what we can see with our senses. So it goes beyond what we're able to perceive which is a lot of what's happening in liturgy is the stuff that we can't see. So we engage all senses to help enhance what we can't see or perceive 
And so I think that's kind of, you know, the feminine, the femininity, is that a word? Yeah, is the receptivity. Yeah. yeah. But of the soul, I think is important because we don't always think of that. And I think when you, when you approach it from that angle, it allows you to see things at a different perspective, different level. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so a lot of times you'll see in movies, like, couples will have this secret spot they go to, you know, and they meet up at, like, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. at this secret spot. Well, that's the mass. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going there, meeting the up with God. Yeah, I remember uh, David Fagerberg years ago when he taught here, he used to have this quote. He said, the liturgy was the trysting place between God and man, like where humanity and God come to kiss, to, mm. to have their little love moment, just like you said. Yeah, well, that, uh, kissing is a weak image, I think, when you really want to talk about God's intimacy with you. Um, especially when you Would get you to use Eucharist. making out. Would that be better? Image? No, that's all week. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> so we think wedding night. <laughs> oh, whoa. Yeah. All right. But you know that we, we get all nervous about these bodily images when actually that's just a little participation in God's reality. We try to, oh, how can we say all these things about God? Well, it's really the other way around. So that's right. Yeah. It's like, we look at human relationships and think it's something like that with me and God. But Edith Stein said, no, you're wrong. That's the copy relationship of the archetype of God and human beings. That's the paragon of how relationship is. And I guess you could look at the persons of the Trinity that way, right? They're, ho- they're separate, right? Distinct, and yet they're wholly interpenetrated. Like one is in the other without losing their distinct identities. And so mm-hmm. at the infinite level, they're one. And at the same time, they're individual. And so I, I guess anybody you know well, you're either less or more united with them intellectually, emotionally, physically, in case of a spouse. But uh, for the most part, you're either a stranger or you have entered into some kind of sharing of yourself with the other. And God wants to share himself with us. Yeah. Well, even the Greek notion of what's happening in the Trinity, it's this idea of the perichoresis. It's a Greek word. Dancing around. Dancing around. But when you're dancing with someone, you're lost in the the act of, of dancing or love, right? So you're just dancing and you transcend yourself and it becomes just this interplay of love. And it's less about the activity that you're doing and more about how you are with that existing with the other person. It become one. Mm-hmm. All right, we're done. All right, that was really great. <laughs> Thanks. And if you want to listen, no, sorry. Well, the, the perichoresis is extended into the liturgy. I mean, even Bishop yes. Barron's talked about the dance that the priest does and his gestures and things. And then there's the back and forth, right, of the priest and then the responses. And well, what do you do when you're in love with someone? You sing. Right, and that's what they do in the mass. We sing this beautiful back and forth, and the dialogue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, so the the nuptial imagery. Where do we see that in the mass? Where do we see that in the liturgy? Yeah. Well, there's a lot of places. Okay, um, like what? You meeting on Sunday? Okay. The, uh, the the Christian version of the Sabbath. The Jews saw the Sabbath as a wedding day. So there's this whole book, I should have brought the book in, how the Jews, there's even the song they sing, Waiting for the Bride to Come on the Sabbath. Is it, here comes the bride, that one? <laughs> <laughs> All dressed in white. Well, why is she dressed in white? Because she's perfect and clean and spotless and about to meet her groom. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> yes. And that's the but also the, That's Christ. So the eighth day, right? The Mass is the eighth day. It's, it's, the, it's also the, the Christian version of the Sabbath. Well, we're going there to meet the bridegroom. That's the day where God finished creation and then rested with creation. And on that day, there was a wedding. So the wedding, the Bible begins with the wedding. The Bible also ends with the wedding, the wedding feast of the Lamb. 
And so throughout the Bible, there's the bridegroom, which is God, luring Israel into this intimate relationship. So in, I think it's Ezekiel Hosea, he says, when you were young, I took you out in the desert and I spoke tenderly to you. And then Israel was unfaithful to their husband who Boy, was Boy, were they. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, harlot times. language in the Old Testament, right? A camel and heat. And, you know, <laughs> and prostitute language. And we just think that means like the physical, normal, you know, sort of things people do down in dirty alleys and stuff. But we're what, cosmically or theologically speaking, it's Israel turning to false gods. He, and he told Hosea as a, as a um, to show to to make a to make a symbolic manifestation of my your relationship with me. You're going to marry a prostitute, and every time she's unfaithful to you. People will understand our relationship. <laughs> Whoa. So how about yeah. that vocation? That's stiff-necked people. That is intense. And I think sometimes people think, well, that's the, that's the real God, the angry God who calls you a harlot and wants to constantly sort of chastise you. But that's the God who is trying to keep Israel from falling off the cliff of false gods. What he really wants to be is in love, like a parent or a spouse, and say, hey, I want to love you, but you keep running away. You mm-hmm. keep doing the wrong things. I want to love you. I want to love you so much that I want to be one with you, and you keep going off like a prostitute with and, false and love is a choice i mean it's uh so he he can love us all he wants and indefinitely and perfectly but unless we choose to love back um mm-hmm. we don't get to engage in that relationship fully he he's kind of like a um like a high school boy who really likes this girl he, no matter he, what he she keeps does. getting screwed over <laughs> and he doesn't get it but he's going to keep going and mm-hmm. with jesus he just goes all the way, I'm gonna do whatever it takes. And so what's the first thing Jesus does, his first miracle? Uh, at the wedding feast, water so into wine. So he goes wine. to a wedding, right? Mm-hmm. Turns water into wine. It was the job of the bridegroom to provide wine for the festival, but it's not the, the actual bridegroom there, it's Jesus doing it. Mm-hmm. So he picks up the bridegroom theme and he continues it. Now Jesus is the bridegroom, but he's come to prepare, repair the relationship that's been broken. So this is happening throughout his public ministry. So there's that one, there's that one line where he says, um, it's gonna come to me. He says, oh yeah, I'll go away and I'll prepare a place for you and then I'll come back where you are and take you to where I've been. Well, that, that's a line from, if you know anything about Jewish history and the way their weddings take place, is the, the Jewish bridegroom would, he would, he would propose to the, the girl, they'd become betrothed and then he'd run off and he'd create a place for them to live, he'd get, transportation and connections and, and food and all that stuff. And then he'd come back for the bride. But the bride didn't know when he was coming back. He'd come back at night. Oh, and so he wow. comes back at night, and so they have to have their oil lamps, right? Now you've heard mm-hmm. the story about the five and the other five that are foolish. And he comes back at night and they say, let's go to the wedding feast, right? So Jesus intentionally identifies himself and he does these symbolic acts because he's espousing himself to us in Israel. That's why Augustine, Augustine said the cross, cover your ears, the cross was the bridal chamber where the bride, the bridegroom gave his life for Mm. the bride. He injects the bride with his life. Now it's a divine life, it's his blood and water from the cross, it's the sacramental life of the church. Yeah, so in the mass, you have a lot of nuptial images. And the one, you know, the, the, the chapala, the, um, the, the, ca- the canopy, there's these four columns and there's a canopy. Well, that's what the Jewish people used to get married under. Mm-hmm. Many people still do. I've been to wedding, Jewish weddings where they do that. And it's a representation of the holy and holies where humanity would come into God's presence, right? 
And so that was brought into the mass. I mean, you can do a history of it, but it's at St. Peter's Basilica. You can see all these old artworks and you see it there and they're new as the mass is forming, but you receive communion under that thing. Like a baldacchino in a church today. It's a mm-hmm. four column thing with a canopy over and the altars under there. So there's, there's a, um, a wedding taking place when you receive communion. And the fathers saw the Eucharist as a nuptial element because the bridegroom comes into the soul and he interpenetrates and there's a deep intimacy. That's why we talk about kissing. It's like, is weak. Come on, man. Yeah. Yeah. There's some serious, the two becoming one. Yeah. If on your wedding day, all you, at wedding night, you got the kiss in the church and that was it. That'd be done. Right. That wouldn't be a full marriage, would it? No, I don't think it counts, right? That's not, that's not valid. You well, have the con- yeah, the consummation is necessary for the full validity of the sacrament. Yeah, yeah, let's talk about that, consummation. Well, you can't have a proxy to it, so it has mm-hmm. to be the actual. <laughs> you can have props, proxies for, like, the godparents or the witnesses, but it can't be the proxy bride or the, the consummation. Huh. It has to be. <laughs> well, yeah. So in terms of the consummation... Is that the is that the um, death and resurrection of Christ's consummation of that nuptial imagery, or is it the it's just the resurrection, or is what? Well, yeah. So there's a there's a tension of already and not yet. It's here but not fully. So every time we go to mass, it's a foretaste of our future marriage to God. But when we receive the Eucharist, I would say that's the that's the consummation where the two become one. So God becomes one with our souls in a very deep, intimate way. But then at the end, and this has to do with the Mass too, behold the Lamb of God, he takes with the sins of the blessed are those called to the wedding feast of the Lamb. That's the very end scene in the Bible. And we, we participate in that in the Mass in like a, in like a sample. Right? It, it mm-hmm. makes us look forward to our future marriage of God where no longer there'll be the Eucharist, it's just gonna be God in the soul. And those are the images that come up when it comes to the rite of dedication of a church, or if you look at the preppers for the um, feast of the dedication of John Lateran, or, or you'll see that the wedding imagery from the book of Revelation are the ones that mentioned there, that the city comes down from heaven dressed like a bride prepared for her husband. How do you dress a city like a bride? Well, the city is this image of the mystical body of Christ. All the many parts of a city, the many people come together to form this entity as it is in the mystical body. But then you have to ask the question, what's the bridal chamber like? You know, just because modernist architects want you to have concrete walls and glass panels, like, is that really bridal in character? You know, the bride has a lot of stuff, jewels and flowers and a big white dress, and it's festive, and there's bows. Something old, something blue. Well, yeah, bows and ribbons and traditional conventions. And so if if you see the church as the place where that wedding feast happens, in a cosmic sense, then it's the stars, the trees, the angels, the saints, God, festivity, symbols of festivity, fine materials. You think about all the money that people will spend on their wedding dress or their wedding meal or their wedding Rolls Royce that they rent. Everything has to be elevated and festive and precious. But then the church building is sometimes forgotten as this sort of beige, empty room. Without that good the- nuptial theology, then it's just kind of nothing. Mm-hmm. We got married at St. Alphonsus in Chicago. Which so. has lots of nice stuff in it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we were very fortunate. Yeah, well, there's the, the spiritual writers, too, like John of the Cross, talks about God adorning the soul with the virtues, and it becomes like this flowery garden full of life. So there's an image there, too, of... Uh, help me out here. You know, I'm trying to connect your concept. Ornamentedness, yeah. festivity, yeah. ritual festivity. Noble simplicity. <laughs> well, but see, that's where noble simplicity comes in, because 
there was a time in the 19th century where people didn't understand ornament because they were historical crazy. So they'd dig up some ruin and then they'd start making a bunch of those ornaments on their new buildings or they would have this ornament book and they would just sort of copy the ornament out of it for no particular reason. And then the modernist architects and others came along and said, oh, well, we're just about ornament that doesn't mean anything. Let's get rid of ornament completely. And so you have to have the big empty room, a kind of minimalist approach. When actually ornament has a rigor to it, without ornament, things are dingy and un, uh, festive. And with too much ornament, you can't see what's actually happening. It's like going to a, a dress shop or an ornament shop rather than a finely ornamented room. So the answer to not using it well and using too much is a noble simplicity or a noble beauty, which means use it. And in fact, the line in Vatican II that says, the phrase noble simplicity says, the rights and the ornaments should have a noble simplicity. How about that, Jesse? I like it. The ornaments are expected to be there, but they're supposed to be there as they belong there to indicate this festivity and not just thrown around because you can. It's a balance. You have to have enough to make it knowable, but then uh, not so much that you can't understand or see the fine detail of what it is. Right. If you put 17 veils on a bride's head and it would cover it up her face and it looked ridiculous, you'd say, why is she wearing 17 veils? Well, it's her wedding. More veils equals more wedding, right? No. <laughs> noble simplicity is one veil <laughs> is the right thing. But I don't no, see the problem with that. But no veil is not good enough, right? Yeah, so, to no avail. But to no avail, right? So two, two of it. anything when you only need one is too many. But zero of anything when you do need one is too few. Well, that's, that's another, the veil itself, you know, the veil being uh, in the temple. Another thing, you know, removing the veil, being able to see past the thing that used to block your vision and, and view. And the veil was torn. Mm-hmm. And now, now there can be... Um, the wedding. Yeah, there can be the wedding. You can go between the, that veil now. It doesn't, it's not there. It's not blocking anymore. We can, we can experience Christ or God in a way that we couldn't before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the veil, the veil brings mystery into it too. And there's still a lot of mystery and veiledness in the sacraments themselves because you're encountering Christ through a mediation. So even faith itself is a kind of veil you're not actually seeing, but you're getting a taste. And even the words, so the words in scripture, I think it was, was it Origen who talks about there's this mystical thing where they reveal, but they don't fully reveal. They also conceal mm-hmm. and things like that. And, um, when you see the veil across a bride's face and she's like, oh, there's this mysterious, beautiful woman back there, right? There's something about veiling that actually d- builds up desire. Sometimes people will say that the silence in the liturgy actually is a veiling. Like you can't hear every word the priest is saying, but then you start looking around. Oh, how come I'm not hearing? What's he saying? And suddenly you're more interested because you're not hearing it or you're not uh, seeing what's going on. And then when the veil is lifted, you're like, oh, wow, I got this full expression again. I like that. I like it a lot. Desire builds desire, desire, desire. So why do we, um, this nuptial imagery, um, why do we... Why do you think God uses this as a very core aspect of the liturgy and his relationship with us? Well, God is a lover. He's an intense lover, and he wants a relationship with us that is very intimate, like married couples. And John Paul II, John Paul II, John Paul II. <laughs> I like that. John, John Paul II. <laughs> he said that's the, best, that's the best metaphor we have of God is, you know, writing Theology of the Body is God wants this kind of intimate, deep, almost scandalous relationship yeah, it's with it's uncomfortable us. talking about some of this sometimes. I mean, it, it's, it's very uncomfortable because we're just, we're, we're so conditioned by our fallen minds, you know, and, and the culture really taints things. But when we talk about God as 
lover or God being arrows, holy arrows. Um, I think most people don't have that in their relationship with God. And um, I don't understand how you could have a relationship with God without it, you know. Like having so, a relationship with the Starbucks server, you know, you just walk in there in the morning and see them every morning. Oh, hey, how you doing? How you doing? How you doing? That's not enough if it's going to be You got to get right? behind that counter and <laughs> roast the coffee. Well, there you go. If you really <laughs> wanted to have a relationship with the with a person, just a little shallow hello is not enough, right? More and more and more, deeper and deeper understanding of each other and to be known, to be loved. Oh, I mean, I'll admit this to you guys. Okay. Cool. Or don't don't tell anyone. What is it? I was praying one time in the chapel. And oh, oh, yes. That's excellent. That's what yeah. you wanted to tell me. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know where it came from, but God's like, I want you to blow me a kiss. And I thought, <laughs> not going to happen. This is so ridiculous. Not going to do it. Dude, man. Not going to do it. Wouldn't be prudent. Not going to happen. Yeah, so, did, so did you do it? I did it. Yes, I knew you would. And then it turned into this thing where, like, God really liked that. <laughs> <laughs> and then he wanted more. Yeah. Yeah, so. Well, I say this a lot, but I'm, I'm convinced that we're basically, we, we relate to God the way we relate. God relates to us the way that grown-ups relate to two-year-olds. Everything they do is delightful, even when they disobey, even when they poop their diaper, even when they walk into traffic. Isaac had the most delightful diaper the other day. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> despite that, we still find them delightful when little kids go, blah, 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 mama. And you're like, he said mama, right? Like, God doesn't mm-hmm. care if we can't pray like Newman, right, with eloquence, but he wants us to come to him, be one with him, and let him unite himself with us. You know, that does remind me of a recent... Uh, happening with my daughter Agnes, who's almost three, I was uh, telling her that I was very mad at her because she did something wrong, and that if she could convey that she understood what she did wrong, then I would have, you know, I would forgive her and I would have mercy, and, and then um, and throughout all of that I told her, no matter what, even if daddy's mad at you, he still loves you. So she just latched onto that last part. <laughs> and so I told her I was mad at her the other day, and she goes, okay, but do you love me, Daddy? <laughs> and I said, "Well, yes, of course, but I'm but I'm mad right now." And uh, that was, she does that now. Whenever I tell her I'm mad or angry or sad, she goes, "But but you love me, right?" <laughs> right. And you have to think about why you're mad, right? If you if the kid runs into the street and there's traffic, moms go mm-hmm. berserk, "Get over here right now!" And they yell and scream. And you're like, "Oh, why does she hate me?" But if you think about God looking at the Israelites that way, I want to love you, and you are worshiping false gods. Mm-hmm. It's a golden calf or whatever. God has to say, get over here right now. Stop doing that. And mm-hmm. if you think of your parent as only in the angry moments, then you don't know your parent too well. And also the punishment kind of fits the crime too. So like if you're in the street and you shouldn't be there, then you don't get to go outside for a couple of days. Right, or until they understand what's wrong, right? Exactly. It's not just an arbitrary punishment, but... Uh, I understand now, Mom, that I could get hit by a car. Okay, well, then I guess you can come out of your room. <laughs> and you right. can kind of see some of those, um, you know, those restrictions that God put, you know, in, in, uh, in, the, in the laws and rules against the Israelites kind of matched the things that they were doing wrong. The punishments were fitting them. Right. There's, there's a lot of just, uh, writing about that now that they had to destroy the things they were tempted to worship. And so they would worship all these Egyptian gods of lizards and frogs and cows and stuff and so mm-hmm. they had to do all those ritually things to, destroyed every right day. the things they were tempted to uh to worship i ha- i gave a homily one time i just thought of this and it was on this nuptial stuff and i think it was a wedding homily and a guy came up to me afterwards and he said father your uh, homily got me a little uh a little hot there and i said 
You should read the Bible, man. <laughs> hot like uh, amorous or hot like angry? The first one. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, people don't hear this. I mean, it is, it's not the language that, it's not the way that we prefer to talk about God. We prefer to talk about God as Abba, Father, and to say, like, he's, he's our dad, and uh, we have a very cordial, familiar relationship with him. And when we need something, we go to him, and he says, oh, well, of course. And then um, we ask him to take care of everybody else that we know. But we don't think about our relationship, at least I don't, um, as, uh, as God, the lover of me, and somebody pursuing me as a lover. Just read the Song of Songs, man. It's, almost, it's embarrassing whenever that comes up in the daily readings, like, hark, my lover calls, you know. You're like, I'm watching you through the lattices. <laughs> <laughs> right, you think it's like some weird pervy guy you. in the bushes, but um, it's not so much that you know, our fallen desires of body and heart are projected onto God as much as our fallen desires are a little tiny out of whack participation in God's primary reality and then we want to get back into that proper right relationship okay question father what are some things that we can do to condition ourselves to start thinking about these things in a uh, a more regular way yeah that's a good question I mean obviously prayer is is one way to kind of ask God and to you know ask him how how we should pursue a relationship together. I think that's probably the first one, but do you have any other type of, you know, ideas mm-hmm. or advice? I do. Let me think about this. Read the entire theology, theology <laughs> of the body. Well, I'd say say yes, right? Invite God in. I give you permission to love me as my spouse. God is like a vampire. He cannot come inside your house unless you invite him. You have to say, hey, come inside. Well, that's what they always say. God can't force you to love him and he can't mm-hmm. force you to allow him in. So you have to invite, because if it's not invited, then it's not love, right? It's uh, some kind of, I don't know what you call a rape, but the opposite of that would be, yes, I love you. Mm-hmm. I allow you into the depths of myself. And you got to pray with your desires. So don't just pray with your needs in your head and, you know, pray with whatever's going on in your heart that day. If you're angry, tell God you're angry. Invite him into the anger. If you're happy, Tell them why you're happy. Invite them into the joy and celebrate with them. If you feel like there's no reason for the world to exist, tell them that, right? Yeah. That's difficult for me personally because I think that, to me, seems like a cop-out. Like, I know that sounds weird, but to be, like, authentically vulnerable, I feel like, well, maybe I'll just be thankful right now because I know I have more than I need. And so that seems like a better approach right now in, in my prayer is to be thankful or to think of others. And I think that's kind of my default. But then to actually be, to, to ask and to be vulnerable, I think is not my first inclination. Yeah, you nailed it. You know, the word vulnerable is a hard one. Vonalare means to reveal yourself, to open yourself. So we tend to put like chains around our heart, like armor around our heart to keep ourselves safe because the heart is very You gotta very guard tender. your heart. But you know, Agnes will never not tell you. She'd be like, Daddy, my tummy hurts. Or, Daddy, I stepped on something. Or, Daddy, I got stung by a bee. Or whatever. I hit my brother. Like, she would not go and hide and say, oh, I'm in so much pain, but I'm ashamed of myself, so I can't tell my dad. So, you know, these feelings come up sometimes. As of right now, she might, <laughs> she might do that when she's older. <laughs> but, right, well, that's when you start getting the age of reason comes in. You say, oh, well, if I feel this feeling, then I'm, that's shameful, and I should just hide it. Or if I have this desire for something that's not right, then I should just ignore it. When actually, what a friend of mine named James B. from Washington, D.C., told me a nice line once. He said, if God allows a desire, it's because he wants to fulfill it. 
Even Desire mo- is love waiting to happen. Ooh, I like that. Did you make that? Up? No, it's some theologian. Oh, okay. <laughs> I won't say his name. <laughs> but you is know, it your we, brother. <laughs> no, he's persona non grata. We're embarrassed by stuff, and we say, "Okay, it's, it's sinful or it's wrong." And if, I'll just wait till confession, get it done. Then it comes back, and we're like, "Oh, what's wrong with us?" And it's like God saying, "Hey, there's a wound. You're feeling that pain. Let me in. Let me in. Let me in. Let me in. Let me fix it, because I'm your spouse and your dad." <laughs> I know that sounds creepy in human terms, but it's not it creepy in God's terms. It sounds creepy. This whole conversation has been like, <laughs> and your dad. <laughs> Hope you find your dad. Daddy wife. <laughs> but you like think about the Virgin Mary, you know, she's the mother, she's the daughter, she's the spouse. It sort of all happens there with all the persons of the Trinity. Normal uh, divisions and, and situations just fall apart when you're dealing with the infinite nature of God. Being vulnerable is the key to intimacy. It is, and you have to learn how to do it in prayer. It's hard for men, and I talk about this a lot. Uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. It's hard for men. You know, maybe if you can be vulnerable, like hold like a knife in your hand or some concrete, you know, and maybe you'll feel okay doing it. You'll feel like a man. <laughs> and a shotgun and your dog. <laughs> but, yeah, the more you do it, the more, the more you're opening God to your interior life, the more space you're allowing him in your soul. It's like men don't like to go to the doctor either. It's probably the same reason. I don't want to lie on the table and get poked around and checked and all that stuff. It's like, I don't want someone in my space, but mm-hmm. no, I don't need just it. some I'll weird emotional thing. I mean, it's whatever's going on in there. It doesn't have to be emotions. What are you thinking? What happened in your day to day? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I love that imagery of the relationship because, you know, that's something I'd like to be to my wife, to be able to be honest and open and vulnerable when needed. And it only makes sense to be that way to, to God. But I guess, like I said, I don't really think about that as my approach. My first approach to God is always Abba, Father. And I don't think of it, you know, in regard to the conversation that we had just now. Beauty is another one that helped me really kind of get in touch with the holy eros of God. So I would just sit out and look at, like, the sunset. And I didn't know why, you know. And, like, I do that every day. This is before I started thinking about reality and life and as I started studying theology, I was like, oh, that was God. He was coming for me, man. He, he saw me. He was coming. He's giving you a bouquet of roses right there. Huh? Beauty really, I mean, in everything. It really is God's beauty just oozing into the world beyond the veil, you know, coming in. Um, so poetry, and art, nature, those kinds of things are great ways to encounter God. So we, and we need to take down our obstacles and barriers that we build up in the way. Because we can distract ourselves or we can ignore it and we can tell ourselves that it, there's, it's not really there and, and that God can just be that neighbor on the other side of the fence, but we never, you know, never hang out. And it's just, you know, that guy over there that I sometimes talk to, but um, Wilson. Wilson, Wilson, you yeah. never see his face. Nope. Just his hat. Yeah. Just, well, sometimes you see the bottom of his face. Sometimes you see the top of his face. So mm-hmm. I think if you made a composite, bit, but you could also look him up on IMDb. So Everybody knows Wilson doesn't have a face. <laughs> the man without a face. Uh, any other imagery in the Mass that you want to mm-hmm. mention? Communion. Well, yeah, communion. Well, we kind of talked about the yeah. Eucharist coming inside. And God is inside image. of you. Isn't that crazy? Okay, so if the Eucharist is the consummation, then what is required of us afterward? being present to the God of the universe in the deepest part of your soul. And then that would, to him. that would be kind of the go forth, like, now, now that you've done this, this should be proof, this should, be, this should demonstrate 
to other people, everybody that you encounter, that you've had this relationship with God and that they should see that through you. They should see God through you, correct? I was watching this old rerun of the Mary Tyler Moore show on YouTube the other day. And I don't know who that is. Mary Tyler Moore was one, was one of the great uh, famous sitcoms of all time, the early 70s. I'm kidding. I and Lou Grant to... was this curmudgeonly old, overweight, balding, grouchy guy. And he falls in love with this woman and nobody knows it, but he comes in and he's whistling and he's walking around and he has a turtleneck and a velvet uh, blazer on and they all know something's up, but they don't know what. And then they find out it's a woman later on. But he's been loved. He's in love and it's just oozing out of him. He can't help it. And they can all see it. And then he's just spreading it around wherever he goes. Then they break up, but, you know, for a while there. <laughs> Way to ruin it. Well, Spoiler alert. I met this homeless guy one time. And um, we would kind of help him out getting some food and stuff. But I think he was probably like an angel or like maybe it was Jesus in disguise or something. But all he would talk about, all he would talk about is Jesus. Jesus. Oh, he loves Jesus so much. And, to, you know, I had to give him a ride one time. I would talk about Jesus, Jesus. You know, this guy was just ridiculously you're like, in love with Jesus. You're like, hey, I'm a, I'm a priest, and I, I think you should cool it a little bit. Yeah, I wanted <laughs> to tell him. I would get to church, the church early to open it up, and he'd be, like, out front, like, 5 a.m., like, singing to Jesus, singing to his spouse, you know. And, wow. But like you said, this overflowing love, it, it's very infectious. You're like, I want to love Jesus that much. Maybe I should be homeless. The other elements of uh, in the mass, you know, there's the whole kissing of the altar. Mm. Oh yeah. There's the, there's the using the lace either on the um, priest's garments or um, the altar cloths and stuff. Uh, it's like and a wedding dress. I think we should wear our baptismal garments to mass. You know, there's that one instance in the Gospels where they talk. Mine about, does not fit me anymore. We'll make it work. Okay. Because you know you can't get into the wedding feast without the garment. What is the garment? Yeah, what is it? It's your baptismal garment. Oh. So even the rites of baptism, the church fathers saw this as kind of a nuptial moment. So back in the day when someone was getting married, they'd have the nuptial bath and they'd clean the bride off and get her ready. And the church fathers would say, well, if you were going to get married, wouldn't you everything you could possibly do to get ready for your wedding? And that was what baptism is, right? You're washing, cleansing water, you know, mm -hmm. you're encountering Christ in the sacrament. Now they go out and get their hair due and their nails done in the little group and all that stuff. But the, the bride still has all these attendants to make sure she's ready, right? Mm -hmm. The bride is ready to meet her groom. We met some attendants at the restaurant the other day, right, Dennis? Oh, yeah. <laughs> this sports bar emails for lunch, and these five or six or seven bridesmaids yeah, come in, and they're like... And the flower girl they're like, to the bar. The, mass is, the, the wedding's in 15 minutes. We need shots right now. And woo, they're all cheering. <laughs> I don't know if I'd want seven drunken bridesmaids at my wedding, but uh, what can you do? It was interesting. It definitely Gosh. was interesting. <laughs> you know. As a priest, you'd love to see seven drunk bridesmaids coming down the aisle. I can tell you a lot of bad things, okay? Don't get me started. <laughs> but see, that's not noble simplicity, right? That's when you get to too much complexity. You're not doing it right. The festivity becomes not joyous, but uh, too much. What did, uh, what did Dr. Foley say? The difference between... Merriment and fun. Merriment is in, includes fellowship. And fun is just something that's kind of baseless. You, you can, can drink too can, much. It's yeah, not you can, merriment anymore. You can always have fun without even you know, encountering people and, and having a relationship with them. But merriment always has an element of fellowship. And so he talked about, he also talked about um, 
weddings being a, like the one last place that you see intergenerational drinking um, because you have all of the all generations that are celebrating this activity, this um, sacrament, and they're all having merriment and they're all drinking and they're all drinking together. And he says that uh, our generations don't really drink together that much anymore. The young people will drink with the young people, the old people will drink with the old people, but weddings, that's where you still see it. Hmm. And that's after the wedding. The people are so excited, the two becoming one. And then the, you expand that out, God becoming one with us for eternity. This is the wedding feast that the Lamb goes on and on and on and on and on and on. That's why we need to wear our baptismal garments to Mass. All right. We're going to Mass next week in a big white dress. <laughs> I told right. my parishioners once in a homily, ask God to rock your freaking face off and ask him that every day. And then just watch out. Because it's going to happen. <laughs> I think that we should end our happen. podcast that way. Thank you, and may God rock your face <laughs> off. <laughs> rock your face <laughs> off. All right. Thank you, Father, for joining us, and we're very happy to uh, have this whole thing come full, full circle from the inception of this entire podcast. You're like a founding member of the liturgy, guys. Yeah. Of in course. Pec- in yeah. pectore. In, I don't know what that means. In the heart. Oh. Ex dubiosity. There you go. That too. I don't know you, should, you should check out the video we made also. Oh, or, yeah. Your vocation video? It's on YouTube. What's it called? A Year in the Seminary. Okay. We need more hits. What seminary? Mundelein. Oh, okay. It's but surprisingly it's, interesting and funny. It's not it's just very good. standing around watching a, peach, a bunch of people go to Mass. It's much more interesting. Don't, don't read the comments on there. They'll make you mad. But oh, a year in the maybe seminary. they only make you mad. But <laughs> <laughs> And what's the something productions? What's it called? Beatific Films. Beatific Films. There you go. All right. Thank you, and may God rack your face off. (laughs) (laughs) Where'd my face go? It's been rocked off. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.